When William Marler was 16 years old, he ran away from home and became a migrant worker in Washington state, living in squalid cabins, sleeping outdoors, and hitchhiking rides to farms to pick crops was difficult and dangerous. The low point of Marler's life came when he lost a gig and ran out of money. Still had a place to somewhat live, uh, but I didn't have any money. And my food was, you know, I had a five pound sack of pancake flour, and that's what I lived on for about a week until I got a new job. And uh, it has changed my perspective on pancakes, I have to admit. His stint as a migrant worker gave Marla lifelong connectivity to migrant workers, to food, and most importantly, to food safety issues. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined now by William Marler, managing partner at Marler Clark Attorneys at Law. A national expert in food safety, Marler has become the most prominent foodborne illness lawyer in America and a major force in food policy in the U.S. and around the world. Marler is a frequent speaker on food safety issues at global events. He has testified before U.S. congressional committees, and his work has led to laws and regulations being passed to make food safer. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chitra. Why did you run away from home? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's uh, it was more like I was out to seek adventures and, you know, something different than... Uh, spending another summer uh, working on the family hobby farm. And um, I told my parents I was going to go to eastern Washington and, you know, work in the fields. Um, You know, they were not very excited or supportive of that. And, you know, one day when they were away from home, I packed a duffel bag and walked down to the road and finally got a ride and about – 18 hours later, I was uh, in a little town on the Columbia River, uh, almost dead square in the middle of the state. Was it scary? What did you do next? How did you find work? <laughs> what crops did you pick? Yeah, so I uh, I had some vague idea uh, about you know where to look for work. Um, I actually found, eventually found a job. Um, uh, thinning suckers uh, out of apple trees and thinning apples. Uh, that was sort of my first uh, job. Um, and, you know, it was very hard work uh, and a lot of uh, tree climbing and uh, ladder climbing. And over the course of, you know, the next three, three and a half months, I, you know, worked uh, throughout eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, and into Canada. Uh, sort of following the crops, uh, you know, it was peaches, uh, apples, uh, cherries, uh, and, you know, various odd other farm jobs, including, you know, a period of time, you know, spraying God knows what chemicals on plants without a shirt on. So without a respirator, without anything. So it was a, it was a very interesting, very interesting experience. And, you know, one that I think about you know, more frequently than, than I probably should. What was the, what was the most difficult point of that uh, experience, would you say? Well, the work was really hard generally. Um, and, you know, uh, and, you know, in the, this was, you know, in the early seventies and, uh, you know, at that point in time, you know, the, the migrant farm workers were 
essentially for the most part poor whites um you know it had not really changed to a hispanic sort of uh culture of uh workers and you know i always knew that i could you know hit the highway and go home you know i would my parents would have welcomed me home but you know i was a pretty proud kid and and uh i think probably the low point was i um you know there was a period of time where i lost some you know work there was not anything to do i was still had a place to you know somewhat live uh but i didn't have any money and my food was you know i had a 5 pound sack of pancake flour and that's what i lived on for about a week until i got a new job and uh it has changed my perspective on pancakes i have to admit do you do you even eat them today <laughs> you know it's uh uh i think my kids uh, you know my anytime you know pancakes uh, come up, uh, you know, as a, something for, you know, breakfast, uh, my children have had to hear my pancake story. So it's, uh, I think they now avoid making pancakes because they don't want to hear my story again. None of the Father's Day breakfast in bed pancakes for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're no, not, they not. But, uh, you know, still in all, uh, you know, I, it was, uh, uh, it was a, a really interesting experience for a 16 year old. There, there were most moments in time where it was really super hard work. And, but it's given me a perspective on farm labor um, uh, that, you know, has stayed with me and labor generally has stayed with me for the, my, you know, my entire life. And, and what was the central takeaway? Do you think? Um, well, it's interesting. I've thought a lot more about it here during this recent, COVID uh, episode that we're all living through and you know, just how important so many people that we don't really think about as essential workers. Uh, you know, we, we tend to, you know, think of police officers, uh, firemen as essential. Uh, but, you know, I think COVID has given us that a sense of how the frontline people are uh, you know, nurses and doctors, uh, ambulance, you know, drivers, uh, and then to, you know, people who work in grocery stores and people who work in, you know, factories, farms, and, uh, you know, out there too are, you know, the, really the frontline workers uh, picking our fruits and vegetables and, you know, working in our slaughter plants. So I think it's given me a perspective, uh, you know, a perspective from a, you know, a white you know, middle-class kids perspective that, you know, has grown into a, you know, white upper class, you know, you know, 63 year old guys perspective, but nonetheless, it, I think it's helped shape my view of, you know, hard work and, you know, the value of labor. And I guess it also taught you the importance of education and college. <laughs> Certainly did. Um, you know, uh, uh, it, uh, it, you know, I, I feel very, you know, blessed to have been able to go to college and, you know, uh, you know, make it through and then into graduate school, law school. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it's certainly uh, very tough work working in a, you know, on a farm um, and working on farms and, and, you know, living by your body. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely wanted to come back and, you know, make a living by using what, what gray matter I had between my ears. Uh, so, and then in college, you, you also learned the power of political activism. How did that come about? I was, 
somewhat politically active, you know, uh, in the seventies, we, I think, even though I never had to register for the draft because the Vietnam war was over, uh, by the time I turned 18, um, many of, I lived in a, uh, naval town, Bremerton, which is, there were not a lot of kids that were going to college there to avoid the draft. A lot of kids were going into college, uh, into, uh, you know, the war, um, and being drafted. Um, and so I sort of viewed that that's what was going to happen. And it certainly, you know, focused one's attention on politics. Um, but when I did go to college, um, I wound up, uh, being one of a handful of students that decided to run for the Pullman, Washington, which is where Washington state university is, uh, the Pullman, Washington city council. And what happened was that the four of us filed and there were, uh, for four separate, uh, open seats, uh, the seats were, you know, already filled with a incumbent. Um, and then another townsperson had filed in three of those four. So the students had to face a primary election where they got bounced out because, you know, the townspeople voted for, you know, one or the other of the townspersons. The person I ran against didn't have a primary opponent. And so I got a pass through the primary. The students came back a week after the primary, which one would argue that that's probably why they had the primary when they had it. But um, we were able to register students to vote, and uh, I won by 53 votes out of 5,000 cast um, and was became the youngest person and first student ever elected to the city council. And for a kind of a short period of time, at age 19, I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, uh, people ever elected to a city-wide or a, you know any sort of office because we had just gotten the right to vote. Um, so uh, I also learned very, you know, early on uh, the, the power of the vote. And uh, I, uh, it, I'm, I've always been, you know, a big proponent of, you know, using the power of the ballot box uh, in addition to what we're seeing, you know, presently with uh, people in the streets uh, protesting righteously. Uh, it's, it's, I hope that translates into, to uh, voting action. So you became a lawyer, and I guess you you uh, specialized in personal injury, right? Slips and falls and stuff like that. When I first started out, um, you know, I I worked in a, a sort of a large firm um, doing all sorts of trial work, whatever was getting me into the courtroom. But um, and uh, some of that was defense work, uh, and some of it was defending some you know, pretty nasty defendants, uh, corporations and manufacturers of, you know, products that harm people. But I also, you know, sort of had developed uh, a practice sort of on the side that was was not in conflict to those uh, that work, where I'd represent victims and, you know, auto cases and slips and falls. And so, uh, you know, as long as I kept up with all my other hourly work, I was able to do some some other work on the side for the firm. And if it made money for the firm, you know, they were happy. How did you wind up in, in food safety and getting that famous uh, Jack in the box case? And what was that case about and how did it end up being so important for you? In the winter, uh, 
uh, in Seattle, 1993 in January, um, there was, uh, uh, in the newspapers, uh, there was a morning newspaper and an afternoon newspaper. I remember taking the ferry across from the island that I was living on and still do. Uh, uh, the, I got in, on the boat in the morning and was reading the paper and there was this, you know, a discussion about an outbreak of E. coli that, you know, seemed to be linked to eating food at a jack-in-the-box restaurant. And um, by the evening uh, paper and then the evening news, uh, it, it was all about, you know, really, some, you know, some kids really hospitalized on dialysis and, it, you know, nobody knew what was really going on. And, and I got a phone call from uh, a client, a former client of mine who I had slipped and fallen in a place of employment. And so he, she wanted to sue, but because it was in place of employment, and she had to deal with workers' compensation as opposed to a lawsuit. So I helped her through that and never charged her for any of my time, but helped her through getting her some compensation for her injuries. And um, you know, a year later, she calls me and says, hey, a friend of mine's kid is uh, sick with this E. coli. So I went down and you know met the family uh, and was one of the first lawsuits uh, that got filed. And... Um, and from that case, it was, you know, one case to within days was 10 cases, you know, ultimately hundreds of cases, including, you know, children who became, you know, uh, deathly ill. So, you know, I, I went from, you know, <laughs> sort of just being a standard lawyer to all of a sudden being the legal face of the jack-in-the-box case on behalf of victims. Um, so, that was really the sort of the beginning of what now has been a, you know, 27 plus years of um, representing victims in food poisoning, poisoning cases all over the world. And what's that experience been like? A lot of lawyers don't like their jobs. Uh, a lot of lawyers represent people they don't like to represent. Um, but, you know, everyone has a right to be represented and, you know, whether it's a corporation or insurance company, a criminal or defendant, um, I, I get the best job. I, I get to represent, you know, victims of food poisoning who through no fault of their own, you know, uh, and most of the time it's children or people who are immune compromised. So I get to help figure out why the outbreak happened and, you know, and take care of people who sometimes need lifelong medical treatment and medical care. Uh, so I'm always every day incredibly proud and blessed uh, with the kind of job that I had been able to develop. Um, you know, foodborne illness litigation didn't really exist prior to Jack in the Box. And, um, you know, what I have been able to accomplish in the last 27 years and starting Marler Clark in 1998. So, you know, 22 years at, you know, being the, you know, being the lawyer uh, and having my own firm to do what I want to do has been, um, you know, a, a really exciting thing that, uh, you know, I get up every day thank, being thankful uh, for the job that I have. So, Bill, people may be surprised to hear that food is this can be this unsafe. Aren't there laws against it to protect them? You've had some major cases, huge settlements. Why, why, why is food this unsafe? Well, I mean, the statistics are you know pretty almost even hard to kind of wrap your head around. You know, the 
67 million Americans getting a foodborne illness every year, you know, uh, 3,000 hospitalized, uh, or excuse me, 3,000 dead and over, you know, uh, uh, a million hospitalized. I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's a really serious, uh, you know, problem. Uh, yes, we do have laws, um, but, you know, bacteria don't pay attention to laws. Um, and there are times where, unfortunately, you know, the people who manufacture our food uh, don't pay attention to, you know, the realities of bacterial and viral contamination. Um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, laws about uh, selling adulterated and uh, uh, unsanitary food since, you know, the turn of, you know, 1900s after the Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and uh, the work of, you know, the progressive Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and so, and, and we've had, you know, changes over time, you know, the Obama administration passed the, with the help of the Senate and Congress, uh, passed the Food Safety Modernization Act, um, you know, but we still have a lot of work to do. Um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of the legislation over the last couple of decades, uh, and uh, but we still have more to do and, you know, but we have the technology um, to do it and we've made some progress. Um, I always tell people, in fact, I was uh, telling somebody on a, a uh, International Association of Food Protection conference call that I was on the other day and uh, people, you know, sort of felt like, oh my gosh, we really haven't made any progress. And I always tell the story that, you know, from 1993, Jack in the Box until, you know, early 2000s, uh, 99% of my law firm revenue was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. And because of, you know, a combination of litigation, legislation, uh, hard work by the CDC, and frankly, hard work by the meat suppliers in many instances, um, you know, I haven't had many E. coli cases linked to hamburger at all. So, uh, you know, other than, you know, maybe my accountant not thinking that's a great idea I mean, from the point of, from the point of view of uh you know from victims uh and i think the point of view of society you know that's a success story and you know i tell people that to not you know yes we still have problems but you know these are things that you know with focus are you know maybe not completely fixable uh because these bacteria and virus are uh, you know, very adaptive. Uh, but, you know, I think that uh, many things can be continued to be worked on and progress can be made. You were a lawyer for a very successful lawyer for many, many years, and you could have stayed that way, but you made the transition also to being this global advocate and thought leader. How did that come about? So I think probably because of frustration that the law, uh, the law is a very blunt instrument of social change. Um, it's a very useful tool, uh, and to understand the rule of law and understand how the system operates is an important thing. But it, it's a case by case basis, and so it really, I think, also I, you know, my experience in politics and sort of working with coalitions to try to, you know, effectuate change. Um, it, it really had to do with the fact that, you know, uh, the law is a really blunt instrument for change. Um, you know, lawsuits are difficult on, you know, all the parties. And 
Um, and sometimes it's a case by case by case basis, and it doesn't effectuate change as quickly as you'd like. And so, you know, and with respect to the E. coli uh, thing, you know, you can sue companies all day long and collect millions of dollars from them, but that may sometimes be just the cost of doing business to them. But if there's legislation, if there's public outcry, if there's, you know, sometimes embarrassment from, you know, being outed by how the outbreak happened, I started doing a lot more things, uh, you know, like that, that, you know, made more of an impact. And I also think, you know, putting yourself out there, going to conferences, whether it's, you know, the American Meat Institute or uh, conferences of food safety, uh, the fact that you would go there and sort of go into the lion's den sometimes where there'd be people who were quite angry or very upset that, you know, that, you know, a lawyer is being invited. Um, and I've had people walk out of a conference that I was speaking at, you know, not just because of what I was saying, but sort of as a sign of protest that I was even there. So, um, you know, I, I think part of what I am trying to accomplish is, you know, I have been able to be very successful uh, by representing victims of foodborne illness. And, you know, it's part of, you know, my feeling that I, you know, have a responsibility to help avoid these problems to begin with. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, you can get somebody tens of millions of dollars, but because you got somebody tens of millions of dollars, it, it really means that their life has been so dramatically altered that even though they have the money now to take care of it, you know, they would much prefer to have their kidneys. They much prefer to have a functioning brain. They much prefer not being a paraplegic. Um, so money is a very inadequate uh, way. It's the only way, but it's an inadequate way of helping people through a catastrophic event. Now, you, uh, your efforts, as you mentioned, you know, have made a huge dent in in eradicating E. coli in a lot of foods, and now you're taking a stab at uh, getting rid of salmonella. What is the state of salmonella in foods uh, and and meats in particular, and and how, what's it going to be like to to take that fight on? Yeah, well, back in um, 1994, when Mike Taylor, who at the time was uh, the head of uh, FSIS, which is the arm of USDA that regulates meat, um, they deemed E. coli 0157, which is the nasty bug that caused the Jack in the Box outbreak, they deemed that an adulterant. And what that meant was that the meat companies had to test for it and could not sell it uh, knowing that the product was contaminated, where in 1993, 92, and earlier, they could knowingly sell customers E. coli contaminated meat. Uh, that sounds a little hard to think about, but and in meat, the meat industry is allowed to do that. But if you have a product over on the FDA side, like lettuce, they've never been able to sell E. coli contaminated lettuce. It's you know it's against the law. Um, salmonella, which is a bug that you know, sickens and kills actually more people in the United States than E. coli does, uh, salmonella is still allowed to be uh, uh, on and in 
um, hamburger, chicken, uh, pork, uh, turkey, uh, and the company can knowingly ship contaminated product uh, and expect the consumer to handle it and deal with it. Um, obviously, that doesn't happen because we have lots and lots and lots of people that get salmonella illnesses every year and get severely sick and even die. Um, so I petitioned the U.S. government to do for salmonella what it successfully has done with E. coli and deem it an adulterant so the industry could not uh, knowingly sell contaminated product to consumers. And the whole idea behind it is to try to be as successful with E. coli, uh, excuse me, as successful with salmonella as we have been with E. coli. Um, and, you know, and obviously that would entail, uh, you know, having a lot less work from myself and my firm to do, which again is a good thing. We talked earlier a little bit about COVID-19 and, uh, you know, the pandemic, as you, as you mentioned, has brought the plight of migrant workers and meat packers, to, you know, to frontline workers to vivid light, you know, they're like at the greatest risk. And, you know, you were in the trenches as that 16-year-old, and you've dealt a great deal with with food safety and food issues. What are the challenges in getting the, you know, COVID uh, message out to those workers? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's th- this is going to be a challenge. And the challenge is, is because, you know, many of these workers are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They, they you know, they don't have other marketable skills. And so, you know, being a, a farm worker, being in, in a meatpacking plant is what they know how to do and that's what they can do. And if they, you know, the alternative is, you know, you, you come to work or if you don't work, you don't get unemployment, what are you going to do? You're going to come to work if you have a family and you have to feed yourself and you feed your family. Um, I think people who are in that kind of position, you know, and, and that they, you know, absolutely require employers and the government to make sure that those workers are safe. And that may mean uh, a lot more PPE. That may mean a lot more physical spacing, uh, slowing line speed down. It may well mean that the cost of food increases because, you know, the labor costs are going to go up. Uh, Safety costs are going to go up. But, you know, it's, we've already seen the impact of companies not paying attention to their, the needs of their workers because we're, we're seeing you know, beef prices go up. We're seeing uh, you know, meat uh, be less available, certain kinds of meats being less available. So you, know, you pay for it now by protecting the workers um, you know, who also, with COVID, uh, you know, go out into your communities and, uh, and spread that you know, the disease throughout the community. And so it's not just to protect the worker, which I think is the moral thing to do, but it's also to frankly protect yourself. Uh, And, you know, sometimes profits are, you know, the focus and, you know, we become so short-sighted about the long-term costs in to the people, long-term costs to the community. 
Do you think that um, food safety issues might take a backseat because of the pandemic, given that the full force and weight of the federal government is focused entirely on, on COVID-19? And if, if it does take a backseat, how will consumers be able to protect themselves? That's going to be a, Chitra, that's a very good question. And it's going to be a very uh, difficult one. We do know for a fact that FDA uh, inspections are down, FDA recalls are down. We do know that uh, FSIS inspectors are getting sick in meat plants with COVID. So we do know that it is having an impact. Exactly what impact it's having, you know, intellectually and you know, thoughtfully, it, it has to be having a negative impact on food safety. Part of the problem is because health departments who normally would also be, uh, you know, uh, surveilling foodborne illnesses are in the midst of uh, helping society deal with COVID. And so part of the problem is, is that, you know, intellectually, you know, that this food safety is definitely taking a back seat. Part of the problem is, is that we're not getting that kind of surveillance uh, to know for a fact. Uh, And then you factor in the fact that, uh, you know, we're not, you know, many people aren't eating in restaurants and they're eating at home. And so are the numbers down in part because of that or in part because we're not surveilling what's going on? And um, it, it's, I, it is a challenge um, that because of the risk of COVID doesn't have a great solution right now. By the way, I'm curious, after seeing all of these cases and all of these illnesses, do you still eat meat? <laughs> um well cooked. Uh, not a lot, but <laughs> I do. It's well cooked. Looking back at that 16-year-old farmhand and, and where you are today, what would you say to that young man about the journey that you've been on? Uh, I've sort of been having that conversation with my uh, 21-year-old daughter who um, is uh, putting herself in the middle of some of the peaceful protests here in Seattle. And I found myself uh, talking about you know safety and talking about um, perhaps focusing on a different thing than putting yourself on, you know, in harm's way with, you know, thousands of people marching and, you know, police, you know, I, I, I think most fathers would think that way. Um, so I, I, I certainly have a perspective now of a 63 year old guy, um, that I probably didn't have when I was 16. Um, you know, I suppose if I was, uh, I'm not sure I would really give that 16-year-old any advice. Uh, I'd probably listen to what that 16-year-old had to say to me uh, because uh, even though I think there's a lot of that 16-year-old in me um, and maybe even that you know 19-year-old city council member is still in me, um, you know, 50 years has and focusing on other things um, has taken me frankly, away from some of the real issues that I think we're all facing, whether it's, you know, uh, institutional racism, public health in a broader way than I sort of focus on it. I mean, I feel good about the work that I do, but clearly, you know, my 21-year-old is, you know, indicating to me that, uh, that, you know, she appreciates what I do, but I'm, you know, perhaps not paying attention to the things that need to be paid attention to today that I haven't obviously been focused on the last 50 years. 
And would you say that's sort of your viral insight about your life and work in the wake of COVID-19? Or have you had other moments of clarity brought upon by this crisis? Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of think, I think my, my 21-year-old is teaching me um, that, um, that you can do important things and kind of focus on the fact that you have and are doing important things, but that there may well be other things that you might need to find time to deal with. And so, uh, and I think that's pretty wise. Um, and I think that's probably uh, the same advice I probably would be giving myself if I was a 19 year old, you know, uh, city council member, um, giving a 63 year old Bill Marler the advice. So I think it's, it, you know, it, what I'm learning through this COVID thing is we have a lot of work to do as a society. I mean, I think, uh, this COVID crisis and, you know, some of the recent public, uh, killing of uh, an African-American man has brought to the front some inadequacies in our society um, that doesn't mean that food safety isn't important, um, but it means that, you know, we need to broaden our perspective. And um, that's something I'm, you know, trying to figure out my place in that right now. And I very much appreciate my daughter pointing out my, my inadequacies. Do you think you might change the focus of your law firm? Mm, I, I think not. I think I may, I, I have the luxury that I may f help focus my attention on some other things. Uh, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, I'm not spending two hours a day commuting and sometimes I spend most of my time nowadays uh, uh, pre-COVID in, uh, in a uh, situation where you know, I'm usually in an airport or some courtroom somewhere in the world. Uh, that's now not happening. So my perspective on things, uh, you know, may change given the fact that I have time to focus on them. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today and for this great conversation. Thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure. Bill Marler is managing partner at Marler Clark Attorneys at Law. A national expert in food safety, Marler has become the most prominent foodborne illness lawyer in America and a major force in food policy in the U.S. and around the world. Marler and his firm have represented thousands of individuals in claims against food companies whose contaminated products have caused life-altering injury and even death. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.